Hello everyone, this is Tom Sparling. We had some technical difficulty on Sunday morning, and so I'm going to reteach the sermon for our podcast audience today. And this gives me a great opportunity to say thank you to you for tuning in, for downloading, for passing on the sermons. We're grateful for each of you that are part of our broader audience. If you ever want to get more information about the church, the website is thejourneyma.org. Love to hear from you personally. My email is pastortom at thejourneyma.org. If you're ever in the Worcester area, we would just love to have you come visit us. If you're looking for a home church in our region, you'd be very welcome. God's doing a lot of great things at the church, and we'd love to have you come and be a part of it. Today, we are looking at what C.S. Lewis refers to as the grand miracle in our fifth week through the Apostles' Creed, the Incarnation. Everything else, including the death and resurrection of Jesus, is possible and is an extension of this great miracle of all, the mystery of God becoming man. We're going to be in John chapter 1. We were here last week and we're going to pick up as we try to build a doctrine of incarnation together, looking at this first chapter of John's Gospel. When my kids were younger, our youngest daughter, Ella, was sleeping alone in the room that she normally shared with her big sister, Anna. Every night when our kids were growing up, I would go in and bless each of them. I'd put my hand on their head and I would say, for instance, God bless Ella, help her to have sweet dreams, help her to grow up to love you and to serve you and tell others about you. I did that every night for 18 years of each of our kids' lives. And funny, my daughter Ella was just home from college. Now she's a senior in college and I couldn't help myself. I went in before she went to sleep and I blessed her. And I'm happy to tell you that all three of our kids have grown to love the Lord and to serve him and tell others about him. It's a great blessing as uh, parents to see them growing in the Lord. But when Ella was younger, I was praying over her as she was alone in her room. And as I was leaving, she said, Dad, could you stay for a a while with me? And I came back and said, Honey, you don't need me to be with you. Jesus is here with you. And she said, Yeah, but tonight I I need someone with skin on them. (laughs) That's the incarnation, if you think about it. The God of the Jewish people in their tradition and even of Islam is transcendent. He's above and beyond his creation. He is completely unapproachable. And in the Old Testament, when you see that God come down to interact with man, there is lightning and thunder and awe. There is Isaiah saying, Woe is me, for I have seen the God Almighty. We needed help to reach that God. We couldn't reach that God. And so Christianity teaches that God reached down to us. John puts it this way, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the incarnation. This is one of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. But it's not just that he became a man that matters. It's how he became a man that matters. And that's why the creed says very specifically, he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit 
and born of the Virgin Mary. And so today, we're going to use the first chapter of John to build a doctrine of the Incarnation, and then we're going to ask why the virgin birth matters. And then finally, we're going to look at why all of this matters for us today. So let's read John chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning Him. He cries out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because He was before me. From the fullness of His grace we have all received one blessing after another, for the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who was at the Father's side, has made him known. Here we see the very common commingling of ideas about Jesus that he is both divine and God, and yet he is man. John wants us to be very clear before he gets into the actual story of Jesus that begins in verse 19. In case you have missed it, what I'm telling you is that Jesus is God. That's his clear premise, and he's about to prove that to us by telling the story of Jesus. He says, no one has ever seen God. That's the Father. But then he says, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And that's Jesus. Now, I want to go back to verse 14. And we're going to look at three words as we build this doctrine of the Incarnation. We're going to look at word, flesh, and dwelling. Let's take them one at a time. When John refers to the word, he's referring to the pre-existent and eternal Son of God. We know that because he's been using that word since the very first verse. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Let's just review some of the critical parts of that verse. In the beginning was the Word. The Greek word for was means had always been. What John is saying is that before anything had a beginning, the Word had always been. So in other words, Jesus, the Word, was not created. In fact, he goes on and says, all things were created by him, and without him nothing has been made. That has been made. So the Word has existed always with the Father. That's the next phrase. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Greek word for with means face to face. John is carefully choosing his words to help us here understand that the Word, the Son, Jesus, was in relationship with the Father, face to face, and that also indicates equal standing with one another. So they were distinct. And yet he goes on and says, not only was the Word with God, but the Word was God. So here we have that mystical union. God is one. There is one God, and yet he exists in the person of the Father and the Son. And in other places we learn also in the person of the Holy Spirit. This is where Islam believes that we're polytheists, that we worship three gods. But we don't. We worship one God. The Lord your God is one God. And yet he reveals himself to us, and he exists in perfect community, a God, but yet in three persons. 
So when he says the word, that's who he's referring to, the pre-existing God. The word flesh means that that God became, and here's the definition, body, of course, but it also means kindred, which means like us, and then also it means of human origin and nature. So we're not just talking about physical humanity, we're talking about full humanity. So let me be clear, John is saying that God, fully God, became also fully man. Jesus was not just God with skin, as I referred to him earlier in my illustration. He took on full human nature. And this is the doctrine of the incarnation. Jesus was not just part God, part man. There was no compromise. Jesus did not remove his deity in order to become man. He added humanity to his full deity. The third word is dwelled, and that's the word for tented. Maybe you've heard it, tabernacled. Your uh, translation might say, made his dwelling or dwelled for a while among us. Those are all fair translations. What it means is that he came to earth and temporarily lived among us. When I think about this incarnation, I love thinking about God wrestling with Jacob. The Hebrew word for wrestle there. Actually, um, we don't know for sure what the word means. It's only used once in the Bible. We assume it's wrestling because we know that's what they did. (laughs) They physically struggled with one another. Uh, But the Hebrew word at its origin means something like kicked up the dust. I love that thought. God came down and contended with Jacob and they kicked up the dust together. That's what Jesus did when he came to earth. He literally, with sandaled feet for 34 years, kicked up the dust. He walked on earth, contended with those that were both his enemies and his followers, and he contended with the forces of evil, delivered people from demons, healed the sick, raised the dead, and all along we could touch him. We could break bread with him. We could weep with him and rejoice with him. When he slept, we could sleep. This is the beauty of the incarnation, God with us. I want to read what C.S. Lewis wrote about this. One is very often asked at present whether we could not have a Christianity stripped or as people who asked it say, freed from its miraculous elements, a Christianity with the miraculous elements suppressed. Now, it seems to me that precisely the one religion in the world, or at least the only one I know, with which you could not do that is Christianity. In a religion like Buddhism, for instance, if you took away the miracles attributed to Buddha in some very late sources, There would be no loss. In fact, the religion would get on very much better without them because in that case, the miracles largely contradict the teaching. Or even in the case of the religion like Islam, nothing essential would be altered if you took away the miracles. You could have a great prophet preaching his dogmas without bringing in any miracles. They are only in the nature of a digression or illuminated capitals. But you cannot possibly do that with Christianity, because the Christian story is precisely the story of one grand miracle. 
The Christian assertion being that what is beyond all space and time, what is uncreated, eternal, came into nature, into human nature, descended into his own universe, and rose again, bringing nature up with him. It is precisely one great miracle. If you take that away, there is nothing specifically Christian left. There may be many admirable human things which Christianity shares with all other systems in the world, but there would be nothing specifically Christian. Conversely, once you have accepted that, then you will see that just as every natural event exhibits the total character of the natural universe at a particular point and space of time, so every miracle exhibits the character of the Incarnation. Beautifully put. There is no Christianity without the miraculous, and the grand miracle of all is the Incarnation. Now, let's look at the how of the Incarnation. Why was it important that Jesus was born of a virgin? I want to take you to the two primary passages in the Bible that teach about the virgin birth, the first chapter of Matthew and then the first chapter of Luke. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, and we'll begin reading at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, in relation to our understanding of the Incarnation, the one thing I want to point out uh, of Matthew's take on this is that the virgin birth of Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy. You may be aware that there are 300-plus prophecies concerning the Messiah in the Old Testament Scriptures, all of which were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. The odds of that are just astronomical, uh, and impossible for any person to orchestrate about themselves. It's one of the great evidences that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, the one that God had promised who would come. And in this case, we see that Isaiah had said that it would be a virgin birth. Now, there are always the skeptics who say, well, you know, that word in Hebrew back in Isaiah 7 doesn't have to mean virgin. It could just mean maiden. And here, here's the thing I want to talk about in relation to that. If you come at every single miracle in the Bible and decide to judge it based on whether you think it's a reasonable thing, 
or to think that every miracle has to pass the muster of not having a natural explanation, then what you're essentially doing is is coming at Scripture um, atheistically, as a skeptic. And it's one thing to take everything we know about science and gladly incorporate what we discover about God's universe and help us respectfully and accurately interpret Scripture. It's another thing to come at it in such a way that every time there's a miracle in Scripture, we play skeptic. The fact is, if we believe in God, then we believe in the supernatural. If we believe in a creator, we believe that that creator that put all of the natural laws in space can suspend those laws. That's why we call it supernatural, beyond the natural. Now, let me also just uh, address that whole idea of the Isaiah 7 word for maiden or virgin. The simple fact is that every maiden in Israel was a virgin. They were virtually synonymous because of the moral standards. You were not a maiden if you were not a virgin because sexual union was exclusively for marriage. It's really that simple. And furthermore, as Christians, we understand what it meant because the gospel writers make it very clear that a virgin was with child. Now, let's go on and look at the Luke passage because here we see it through Mary's eyes. And uh, we'll stay in this passage a little bit and explore some of the language here. Let's begin reading at verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, as you'd expect, Mary asks, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Let me talk for just a few minutes about Elizabeth and John the Baptist as something the angel reminds Mary of to say, with God, nothing's impossible. There have been significant moments throughout the history of Israel where God uses a miraculous conception in order to bring into the world a critical person for his purposes. For example, Abraham and Sarah, in their old age, miraculously give birth to Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah. Rebekah is barren, and yet God miraculously 
allows them to conceive, and consequently Jacob and Esau are born. During the period of the judges, the conception and birth of Samuel is the result of God answering the prayer of a mother who was barren. And Samuel plays a key role in the transition from Israel being led by judges into its kingdom period. And now the forerunner, John the Baptist, is the product of a miraculous conception of Mary's cousin Elizabeth. You see, all these are pointers to the greatest conception of all, the virgin birth of Christ. Now, let's ask the question, why do we need the virgin birth? And I want to point out three things. The first is for the integrity of the gospel. It ought to be clear to everyone by now that the gospel writers assert the virgin birth as a fact in history. And what that means is that either the virgin birth is true or Christianity is built on a lie. My wife is Italian. She's first-generation American. Both her parents were children in Italy during the war and then immigrated to the United States. They're two people of great faith in Christ. And Papa's first exposure to Protestants was when a secretary from a theologically liberal Presbyterian church actually called Mary a whore and Jesus her illegitimate child. Now, I find that offensive. I'm sure many of you think that even in the most secular forms of Christianity, people just wouldn't use that description I can tell you that that did happen. And even though others might not use as offensive language, here's the truth. If the virgin birth didn't happen, that's the only option you have. A teenage girl finds herself pregnant and concocts a fantastic story in order to avoid the scandal. And then that story blows up into one of the greatest religions of the world. That's what you have if there's no virgin birth. Without the virgin birth, to be clear, Christianity is built on a lie. So the virgin birth is essential for the integrity of the gospel, and in fact, of all Christianity. Now, as we look at this particular text, we see two other reasons for the virgin birth. One is related to the nature of Jesus and the other related to the character of Jesus. Let's look first at the nature of Jesus as being both God and man. In this text, as we've seen elsewhere, we see this play between descriptions of Jesus as both deity and humanity. Here we see it in the angel's statement, verse 30. The angel said to her, "'Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God.'" You will be with child and give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. Now listen, he will be great and will be called the, what's the next phrase? Son of the Most High. He will be the Son of God. But then the angel goes on and says, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father. What's it say? David. So when Mary asks, how will these things be? She's asking a much bigger question than she realizes. For her, how will I conceive when I'm a virgin? But through her, history is asking, how will this child be both God and man? And the angel answers that very well. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born 
will be called the Son of God. We know how Jesus was the son of his father David. Mary was a descendant of David, and so Jesus has a claim, a direct claim to the throne. But because the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and that's how she conceived, God himself would be the father. And that's why Jesus was also the son of God. Now, let's look at the virgin birth in relation to the character of Jesus. And to me, this is the critical point. Look at what the angel says again. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the, in other words, because of the Holy Spirit causing the conception, because of that, so that the, what are the next two words? Holy One, to be born will be called the Son of God. Those two words, Holy One, to me, explain everything. You see, because Jesus was not born through the natural conception that occurs between a man and a woman, Jesus is the only human being in all of history who was born holy. In other words, out from under the curse of sin and without a sin nature. I want you to look with me at Romans chapter 5. I'm just going to read verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, who was that one man? Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all have sinned. You see, the Bible teaches that ever since the fall of our race in Adam and Eve, every single human being has been born under the curse of sin. We call that, theologically, original sin. They have been born separate and apart from God. We refer to that as spiritual death. And they have been born with a broken moral compass. We refer to that as the sin nature. All of that comes down through the race and is passed on to each generation. Paul says to the church at Corinth, In Adam all died, but in Christ all will be made alive. You see, we needed a new Adam, a second Adam, as the Bible refers to Jesus. We needed someone not only free from the curse of sin, but the capacity to live a holy life. Hebrews 4 speaks about this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. That word tempted speaks about not just moral trials, but all trials, all testings, all challenges of life. Because God became a man in Jesus, he experienced every trial that every human being experiences. And in spite of the temptation that that created, he chose the right decision every single time. He was without sin from birth until death. And Peter goes on in 1 Peter and explains why that was important. 
1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19. God paid a ransom to save every one of you. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless and spotless Lamb of God. We needed a holy human being, and only the God-man could be that. Man so that he could be tempted. God so that he could be free from sin. Man so that he could suffer. God so that he could redeem the world through that suffering. Man so that he could be crucified, put to death, and buried. God so that he could raise victorious over death and raise all of us into the status of being children, sons and daughters of God along with him who is the great and true Son of the Holy One. Let's now look at why this matters for us today, the implications. And I want to talk about four things. The first is that because of the Incarnation, God can be fully known in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, I find a lot of people will say to me, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I don't like that God, but I like Jesus. What that means to me is that you don't know the God of the Old Testament. Because if you know Jesus, then you know God. We're in Hebrews, and we're going to come back to chapter 4. But just go back to chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times, and in various ways. That's the Old Testament scripture he's referring to. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Now listen, the Son is the radiance, which means the exact reflection of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You see, the Old Testament scriptures reveal much about God, but not everything. In Jesus, God is fully revealed. He is the exact representation of his being. So what that means is, if you want to know what makes God happy, look at what makes Jesus happy. If you want to know what God weeps over, watch what Jesus weeps over. If you want to see how Jesus feels about hypocrisy, look at him as he rails against the religious leaders of his day. You want to see what Jesus thinks about prostitutes? Look at him with the Samaritan woman, reaching out to her in love and giving her living water by which she would never thirst again. If you want to know what God feels about the outcast, look at him dealing with a man named Zacchaeus, a tax collector who had abandon his people, hiding up in his tree, a very small man, separated from God and from the people of God. And watch Jesus as he calls him down and enters into his home and brings him life and expresses the love of God. If you want to know the God of the Bible, get to know Jesus. God can be fully known in the person of Jesus. The second thing that I think Uh, matters for us today is that our God truly understands because of the incarnation. He personally experienced life and its hardships. That's what Hebrews 4 says. Let me read it again. 
We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. You can never say God doesn't understand, because he understands everything. Many of you have tried to bring comfort to people that have experienced great loss. Perhaps they've lost a child or or a parent or another loved one, and you haven't experienced that loss, but you've tried to put yourself in their shoes, tried to experience how they feel so that you can comfort them. We call that empathy. But those of us that have experienced that exact loss know exactly what that person is feeling. We're, we're the ones that can honestly say, I know exactly how you feel. That's what we mean by the word sympathy. So when this verse says that God is able to sympathize, what that means is that he has been where you are. He has known every struggle in life. He knows what it means to be in need. He knew what it meant to be exhausted, to be hungry, to be heartbroken. He knew what it meant to laugh and to be lonely. He knows what it means to feel abandoned and betrayed by those that you love. And he even knew what it meant to fear death. So you can know, no matter what you're going through right now, no matter how lonely you feel, and when other people around you can only empathize, and many can't understand, God can sympathize. He knows what you're going through, and he's with you in it. That's the great gift that comes to us because of the Incarnation. The third implication is that we can receive God's gift of mercy. We're still in Hebrews 4. We've already talked about verse 15, that we have a God who sympathizes. But I want to read verse 15 and then continue into verse 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then, in other words, because of this, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We can receive God's mercy because of the incarnation, because we have a God who became man, who lived a holy life, faced every temptation, yet was without sin. And because of that, he was able to pay for the price of our sin. And we can approach the throne of grace and receive forgiveness, receive God's mercy, receive new birth in Christ, be forgiven and be brought into relationship with God. And then the last thing, the fourth implication is also in this verse. Not only can we receive mercy, we can find help in our time of need. Because of Jesus, God is with us. I love that. That's ultimately what the incarnation meant. Remember in Matthew 1, when Matthew reminds us that the incarnation is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, and he quotes Isaiah 7, what was the name of this son who was to be given? His name was Emmanuel. God is with us. Because of what Christ did on the cross, 
we are now in fellowship with God. He is with us. And even better, because he is with us, he's not just tolerating us. He's not just reluctantly letting us in. He is not only with us. He is for us in Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Thank God for Christ. Thank God for the God-man. Let me pray with you. Father, what a precious truth this is. What a great gift that God took on flesh, took on human nature, and in Jesus was with us. And now because of his death, because of his holy birth and his holy life and his holy sacrifice, you are now with us always. And because you are with us, you are for us. Nothing can separate us from your love which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you for that great hope. I pray that that will give our listeners today great hope and confidence in you. I pray that they would approach you boldly and receive mercy and receive help in every time of need. In Jesus' name, amen.